Well, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Esther. Have you ever heard the term fish out of water? It's a phrase used to describe a person outside their natural habitat. Here are a few examples. A truck driver at a poetry recital. That's a fish out of water. A vegetarian at a barbecue. An anti-gun activist at a turkey shoot. Mark Richt at a Georgia Tech booster club meeting. These are all fish out of water. But here's another example. The Jewish community in Persia. In 535 BC, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And King Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Judah to rebuild their temple. Jerusalem was the city of God. Judah and Samaria were the land that God chose for his people to dwell. Judah was home. It was where the Jews belonged. But you see, few wanted to return. While in exile, many of the Jews had prospered and had rose to prominent positions. Isaiah 6 verse 13 tells us that 90% of Jewry stayed behind and remained in Persia. They became known as the Diaspora or the dispersion. The New Testament book of James, if you'll remember, is addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, or to the diaspora Jews. In a sense, these Jews were fish out of water. They belonged in Judah, but they lived in foreign lands under Gentile rulers, surrounded by a pagan culture. Sadly, many of these Jews compromised their faith in God, and yet God remained faithful to them. His providence supernaturally protected these displaced Jews, and it ensured their survival as a people. The book of Esther is a monument to providence. Providence is God's overarching intervention in the affairs of man. It's his means of accomplishing his purposes with or without man's cooperation. The word providence is a combination of two words, pro, which means before, and video, which means to see. God sees life beforehand. He sees life before it unfolds. He sees the end from the beginning, and he orchestrates circumstances to produce the desired outcome. The prevailing of God's will in all situations is what we call providence. Esther proves that God is sovereign over all things, that he really is in control. One other point, Esther and Ruth are the two books in the Bible named after women. Ruth was a Gentile married to a Jew. Esther was a Jew married to a Gentile. The book opens by introducing us to the man that Esther would marry. Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Persian empire stretched from Mesopotamia all the way to North Africa. King Ahasuerus ruled over all of Persia. And this Ahasuerus is known by the secular historians by his Greek name, Xerxes. And we know a lot about him. Xerxes was famous for his wars with Greece. You see, his father Darius had died in battle against the Greeks. And Ahasuerus wanted to avenge his father's death. 
He mounted an army that numbered two million soldiers. His navy consisted of 1,200 warships. He fought the Spartans, and he launched an attack on Athens. After several initial victories, Xerxes was ultimately defeated, and he returned to Persia. John Phillips provides an unflattering summation of Xerxes' life, but it gives you a description of what kind of man he was. He was a tyrannical despot, domineering in temper, ruthless in his exercise of power, grandiose in his schemes and ambitions, derelict in his sensuality. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus called Xerxes incompetent and corrupt. Well, the story of Esther begins in the year 438 B.C., which chronologically places it between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. Between the return of Zerubbabel to build the temple and Ezra's return to encourage the people. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, remember Susa, was a royal city of the king of Persia. It was about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persian media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. This was probably a skull session for his generals to plot out battle strategy. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is mobilizing for war. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Warren Wiersbe makes an interesting point. Xerxes was able to display all his wealth and glory in six months. Whereas Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that it will take all of eternity for God to unfold the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Guys, riches that can be exhausted in 180 days ain't real riches. At the end of the 180-day exhibition, King Xerxes throws a party. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. Literally, a drinking feast. For all the people were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains. White and blue were the royal colors of the Persian Empire. They were fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Persian Empire ruled in luxurious surroundings. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Both history and the Bible tell us that King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, was quite the boozer. Herodias said that he made all his important decisions while he was sauced. That's probably why he ended up defeated. By the Greeks. This must have been one drunk cat. This Ahasuerus. Verse 8. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household 
that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Oh my, Xerxes was into pleasure. Queen Vashti, and by the way, her name means beautiful, and indeed she was, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he'd been drinking nonstop for seven days. Suddenly, this state dinner turns into a drunken orgy. And he commands Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, And, of course, you remember eunuchs were employed as servants in oriental courts so the king could be assured that no hanky-panky would be going on behind his back with the women of his harem. That's why he employed eunuchs. Well, he sent these eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Ahasuerus is drunk. And he wants to show off his good-looking woman to all of his buddies. The implication is is that he wanted this beautiful Vashti to do a little X-rated hoochie-coochie, you know. Do a little belly dancing, you know, to tease the men with her beauty. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Vashti's refusal was a real credit to her character. She must not only have been beautiful on the outside, she must have been very beautiful on the inside as well. Her dignity prohibited her from parading around and titillating a bunch of smashed sheiks. Vashti was a lady. She was a person, not some object. Oh, that all young ladies today had that kind of self-respect. It's also possible that Vashti was pregnant which would have added to her humiliation. By the way, her son that she gave birth to was named Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler who cooperated with Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the walls. Well, Queen Vashti's refusal was a noble act, but that's not how Ahasuerus and his counselors saw it. We eavesdrop in on their powwow in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, For this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mimukan, the seven provinces, princes of Persian media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. Notice these king's counselors, it was said of them that they understood The times. The only problem was is that they didn't understand what counts for eternity. Now, a lot of people that understand the times, they're culturally relevant. That they understand what connects to people. They understand where people are at, what they're into, how to relate. But sometimes we can become so relevant to our culture that we're of no use to God. It's sad, but it seems that the church today is getting this kind of counsel. We're getting counsel from people who understand the times, but do they understand eternity and what really matters to God and what really counts for his kingdom? Well, he asks, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? 
And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they all will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Now, these men who were counselors of the king, they interpreted Vashti's refusal as a potential widespread uprising, a first strike for women's liberation, women's rights throughout Persia. And so they decide they need to make an example out of Queen Vashti. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. They can't take away Vashti's dignity So they take away her crown. She's banished from the royal court. It's interesting, Vashti retained her integrity. But her stand caused her to forfeit her privileges. Guys, it's true, virtue always comes with a price tag. It's costly. But that's why it's valuable. Integrity, dignity is costly. But that's why it's valuable. It takes courage. To be a person of honor and integrity and dignity. In verse 20, Ahasuerus' counselors make an interesting comment. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. As I mentioned in oriental courts, the king's top advisors were usually eunuchs. And I have no doubt that these guys were eunuchs since they obviously know very little about women. Men, if you think you can force your wife into honoring her husband, I got some swampland I want to sell you. A husband doesn't demand his wife's respect. He earns it. That's how you gain respect from your wife and from your family. Bully her, intimidate her, and she'll only rebel. It's been said, he is a fool who thinks by force or skill he can turn the current of a woman's will. Only love softens a wife's heart and gains her allegiance. If you want your wife to support you and trust your leadership, then love her with the sacrificial love of Jesus. Love will melt her will and earn her respect. Well, sadly, these counselors, their call for more macho manipulation Please the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done. And what had been decreed against her. Now between chapters 1 and 2, four years elapse. 
And they are tough years for King Ahasuerus. He goes to battle with the Greeks and he returns home defeated. At the Battle of Marathon, the Spartans stop his troops and they sink 200 of his ships. He returns to Shushan battered and beaten. He looks forward to forgetting his miseries and cuddling up with his wife. And then he remembers what he did to poor Vashti. He's full of regret. He was angry at the time. He wasn't thinking. And guys, that's why it's a good idea not to drink. Because you're never thinking when you're drinking. How many people regret a decision they made under the influence? And in Persia, when a king uttered a decree, it was irrevocable. Even the king himself couldn't go back and recant an order once it had been given. You remember, this is why Xerxes' father, King Darius, had to throw Daniel in the lion's den because he couldn't revoke his own decree. You remember the story? Well, Ahasuerus can't bring Vashti back to the throne, so he decides to remarry. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the woman's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The thing pleased the king, and he did so. Ahasuerus holds a beauty contest to replace Queen Vashti. He sends out his servants on a fox hunt. They comb the countryside in search of beautiful babes. The idea here is to create this huge harem. Then the king can sample the girls, and he can pick the one he likes best. Hey, this is an ancient version of The Bachelor. Verse 5 introduces a key character to the story. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He was a descendant of Israel's first king, King Saul. Mordecai's great-grandfather, Kish, had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name, Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The older man, Mordecai, and the younger girl, Esther, were cousins. And of course, Esther's friends, her Hebrew friends, called her Hadassah. That was her given name. It means Myrtle. I'll bet you didn't know Esther was a southern girl. Just call her Myrtle. Remember, many of the Jews, when they came to Babylon, they received Babylonian names. You remember this. Daniel's three friends all received Babylonian names. Hanani. Azariah, Mishael, also became known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedwego. No, 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 no. That's what Ahasuerus, though, does next. 
That's what he does with this harem full of honeys. To bed we go. Verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women, the Jewish historian Josephus said that he gathered 400 girls, were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. There was something about Esther that quickly won the favor of the harem supervisor. And he gave her extra products, special treatment, extra allotments of Mary Kay. Hadassah got double the Estee Lauder and Clinique. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther got special treatment. But notice the detail in verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. You see, below her beautiful skin, Jewish blood ran through her veins. An anti-Semitic feeling was running high in Persia at the time. I love verse 11. Every father of a daughter can relate. Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Fathers of little girls have a protective instinct. How many times have I paced, waiting until she got home, back and forth, back and forth. Mordecai was pacing, wanting to know what had happened to her. Well, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulation for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Each woman got six months of oil of Olay and six months of Chanel number 5. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. She was given whatever she desired for her night with the king. Fresh grapes to feed the king. T-bone steak. Pizza. The CD love songs from the 70s. Scented candles. You name it, she got it. She got all the romantic gear she needed. And in the evening, she went... And in the morning, she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz. What a name. The king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Each girl had one shot to make an impression. All the girls remained in the king's company in his harem. They were his concubines, but only one was made his queen. By the way, single men present here tonight, let me make sure you know that just because Ahasuerus, his method of getting a wife is in the Bible, that doesn't mean that it's biblical. 
You understand that, don't you? Jacob worked 14 years for a wife. Boaz bought a piece of property and he got a wife as part of the deal. David won a wife by clipping off the foreskins of 200 of his father-in-law's foes. There are a lot of ways to get a wife that are in the Bible, but that doesn't make them biblical. Just because an event is recorded in the Bible doesn't necessarily make it God's will. The Bible also records the foolish deeds of mistaken people. Remember that. Hey, rather than get a wife in today's world, interviewing girls by taking them to bed is a good way to get an STD or a broken heart or a cheapened sense of dignity and self-worth or a ruined reputation or a crumbled integrity. Hey, the biblical way to get a wife is to keep yourself pure. And to trust God to bring you your mate. For God can do a much better job of it than you can. Well, verse 15 tells us. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing. But what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther wins the rose. How about that? She wins the contest. The name Esther means star. And Hadassah became the star of the king's harem. Imagine, out of 400 gorgeous girls, the pick of Persia, an exiled orphan, the great-granddaughter of a conquered Jew, ends up the queen of the empire. It was a grand example of God's providence. You know, down through the ages, it is amazing how the Jews have been elevated to positions of prominence. Statistically, the world's Jewry is a small percentage of the total human population. And yet, the Jewish impact far exceeds its numbers. Of the four most influential people of the 20th century, Marx, Einstein, Freud, and Darwin, all were Jewish except Darwin. Over 100 Nobel Prize winners have been Jewish. Here's a list of some Jewish celebrities. Barbara Walters, Larry King, Woody Allen, Sandy Koufax. Who can forget him? Sandy, a guy named Sandy. Henry Kissinger, Mark Twain, Barbara Streisand, Kirk Douglas, Jerry Seinfeld, Bob Dylan, Ben Stiller, Judge Judy, Dr. Laura, etc., 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 And this isn't accidental. God has blessed the Jews even in their unbelief. Verse 18. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, he called it, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Rather than Christmas, it was Esthermas. And they gave gifts to each other. I mean, you get the impression here that this king is in love. 
And he just wants to kind of spread the love around. You know, let's give gifts. Let's be generous to one another. Verse 19. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. Again, she was afraid. Apparently, anti-Semitic sentiment was as great a threat then as it was throughout the history of the Jew. You know, God's providential blessing on the Jewish people has produced an envy and a spite in non-Jews. Mark Twain called anti-Semiticism the swollen envy of pygmy minds. But it's more than that, really. Hatred for the Jews is not your ordinary, run-of-the-mill form of prejudice. The Bible tells us that Satan is the ultimate source of anti-Semiticism. If Satan can't harm God directly, he will assault God's chosen people. He'll go after God's kids. What else can explain the relentless brutality against the Jewish people that has been a staple of human history, from the Romans to the Crusades to the pogroms in Russia, to Hitler's Holocaust. Last week, we visited Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And it was gut-wrenching to see the intense hatred that the world has fostered against the Jews. The only explanation for history's relentless onslaught on the Jew is a satanic conspiracy. And the survival of the Jews is a direct result of God's providence. What's amazing about the story of Esther is God's faithfulness despite Esther and Mordecai's unfaithfulness. You know, despite throughout the book, our hero and our heroine are guilty of numerous violations of God's law. The most obvious here is that Esther is willing to marry a pagan king. Ahasuerus worshipped the god Zoroaster. And as we move through the story, we're also going to find that Esther fails to keep the Jewish dietary laws. She fails to keep the Sabbath. She fails to keep the feast days. And she felt none of the moral conflicts with these pagan practices that upset Daniel while he was in Babylon. You remember, he had conflicts with these things. Esther seems to have just glided right through. Queen Esther was quick to compromise. Rather than be a witness, she covered up her godly heritage. Understand, Esther represents the Jews of the diaspora, both then and now. At the time, backslidden Jews lived all over Persia, but God providentially protected them. And for the last 2,000 years, this has been the plight of the Jew. For the most part, the Jewish people have lived compromised lifestyles in foreign lands. And yet despite that, God has been faithful to ensure their survival and even their prosperity. It's interesting, the word God never appears in the book of Esther. This is the only book of the Bible void of the name God. And yet that sums up Esther and Mordecai and many of the diaspora Jews. They were Jewish, but their Jewishness was more ethnic and racial than it was religious and practical. This describes most Jews today, especially Jews in Israel. They hold to their Jewishness as a patriotic fondness and as a fervor without trying to keep the law or for many, even believe in God. Bible commentary, Alexander McLaren, he writes along this line. He says, patriotism is more evident than religion in the book of Esther. 
To the Jews in Persia, national feeling was stronger than devotion. They were what we would call secular Jews. And what better description of the modern Jewish state of Israel? They're patriotic, but they're very far from pious. They're loyal to their race, but not so much to their religion. You see, the book of Esther is a blueprint for how God has dealt with the Jews for the last 2,000 years and with how he's dealing with Israel at this moment. Even though they've been unfaithful to him, he has still been faithful to them. His providence has ensured their survival and is even ensuring their prosperity today. He's caused the land of Israel to prosper, turning a desert into a breadbasket. In numerous wars with the Arabs, God has provided the Jews supernatural protection. Most Israelis today fail to recognize their Savior. But that doesn't mean that their Savior isn't watching out for them. Just as he was in the days of Esther. The survival of the Jews to this very day is evidence of God's wonderful providence. Well, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. Verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Secular history tells us that these two men were planning to put a poisonous asp in the king's ale, get him drunk, then drop a viper in his vodka. Talk about a drink with a bite. Rather than pass out, he'd just pass away. And so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Mordecai was hoping to get some credit for this. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The whole matter gets recorded, but not rewarded. And I'm sure Mordecai was disappointed that the king had not acknowledged his life-saving snitch. But as we'll see, God had a purpose. Hey, God always has a purpose. Well, in chapter 3, enter the evil villain, Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now you can remember Haman's name and his nature by associating Haman with Hitler. The two go together, don't they? Phonetically and also philosophically. They both hated the Jews. Notice Haman was an Agite. You remember Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel. Hitler killed six million Jews, and Haman would have killed several million more if it weren't for Esther and God's providence. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Mordecai is a Jew with chutzpah, and he refuses to bow to anyone but God. His Jewishness just won't let him bow. Well, then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? 
Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. And Haman decides to retaliate, but notice the form his retaliation takes. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. He doesn't just plan to eliminate Mordecai. He wants to exterminate all the Jews. Haman realizes that Mordecai's defiance was typical of his people. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, Haman decides that the day of the Jewish genocide should be determined by casting the poor or the lots. And so he rolls the dice. And guess which month turns up? The 12th month. Now, it's the first month at the moment. But the 12th month gets chosen. And this is no accident. For what this does is it gives the Jews a year to undermine Haman's plan and to prepare to defend themselves. See, if the dice had pointed to the very next day, it would have been a disaster. But again, God's providence took control of those dice. It was God, not Haman, that set the date. Proverbs 16, verse 33 is a great verse here. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Well, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Haman's even going to pay the executioners out of his own pocket. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And tragically, King Ahasuerus signs off on Haman's heinous plan. Well, the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors, which were over each province, to the officials of the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces. As a side note, Persia was renowned for its postal service. They had this tremendous communication network and postal service by which the king could send out his decrees and the people would be assured of getting it. It was very unique in the ancient world. Their couriers delivered the instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. 
A mass genocide of the Jewish race is ordered by the king. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Ahasuerus and Haman have a toast. The Jews are toast. The king was probably drunk when he agreed to the deal in the first place. And it didn't take long for Mordecai to hear the news. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They just couldn't believe that a death sentence had been ordered against them. And so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. They told her that Mordecai was in sackcloth. Evidently, they didn't tell her why. They didn't tell her about this death sentence on the Jews. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. He wants Esther to know this is not just a situation they can gloss over. This is serious. Then Esther called Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Evidently, the members of the king's court were the last to get the news. Mordecai also gave Esther's messenger a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead with him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. But Esther isn't so sure that Mordecai's suggestion is a good idea. For then Esther spoke to Hathok and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. A good way to eliminate distractions, huh? Interruptions. And yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Ahasuerus was a powerful potentate with an ego as big as his empire. And he had a rule, don't interrupt. All overtures were by appointment only. Enter the king's chambers without observing the proper protocol and you could lose your head. If the king didn't point the golden scepter at you, oh my, it was curtains for the intruder. And besides, it had been 30 days since Esther had even seen the king. For all she knew, he might be angry with her. Or worse, your highness might be high. Vashti could tell you 
when King Ahasuerus got drunk, it didn't fare well with the women folk. Esther was afraid. And so she sends word back to Mordecai that a visit to the king is not the greatest idea. Verse 12. So they took Mordecai, Esther's words. Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther. And his words to Esther have become immortal. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Esther, don't forget, you're a Jew also. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, providence always has a point. Guys, God positions us for a purpose. God worked out the circumstances for you to get that job that you currently enjoy. It didn't just happen by chance. The Lord in his providence opened the door. There was no way you could have got financing for that house. But God did it. God got you into that class that had already been filled up. It was a miracle. You made the team. And you don't know how in the world it happened. Obviously, God had to have opened the door. But now that the door is open. And now that the job is yours, and now that you're a neighbor, and now that you're in the class, now what are you going to do with that opportunity that God has given you? Hey, providence always has a point. God positions us where we can serve him and be most effective for him. Hey, God puts you where you're at for such a time as this. There's a person there that needs to be loved. There's a stand there that needs to be taken. There's an example that needs to be set. And God has providentially positioned you to be the answer to that need. He set you up to shine 